on Monday that went and saw the eclipse, went outside as Derek was talking about. Uh, I was here at the church on Monday and the sky kind of got a little bit darker and so me and a few of the staff ran outside into the parking lot and Ruth was here as well as Betty and uh, Ruth had some contraption that she had made with a cereal box with a hole in it. And so I was like looking through this cereal box with a hole and Betty snapped a picture of, of me looking through the cereal box. So uh, if Betty's here, you could try to get that picture from her if you want to see me trying to look at this eclipse through the cereal box. But how many of you went and looked at it? Most of, of you here, a number of them. Uh, hopefully you didn't look straight into it or you wouldn't be seeing me right now and you had some kind of special goggles or special lenses to look through. But there were tens of millions of people that saw the eclipse on Monday morning, uh, the time when the moon passed between the earth and the sun. Now, some people, when they saw this, saw a beautiful display of nature. Others, more into nature worship, planned to procreate right at the moment of the eclipse. I read this news story. They even aligned their bodies with the aligning of the eclipse, and they planned to procreate right at the moment of the eclipse in the hopes that the baby that they would produce at that moment would be higher up on the evolutionary ladder when they were born nine months later. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see and when these children are born. In, in Christian circles... Some use the event as an opportunity to worship the God of nature. There was a sold-out family festival on Sunshine Ranch in Oregon called Eclipsed with God's Love. Uh, others, like a pair of Baptist churches in Wyoming, took a more commercial approach to the eclipse. And what they did is they used the event to try to convert people to their understanding of creationism by handing out videos called God of Wonders. There were other Christians that hinted at the eclipse being an apocalyptic sign of the end. Anne Graham Lotz, who many of you would know, the daughter of Billy Graham, on her August 7th blog quoted Joel 2.31, The sun will turn to darkness. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then in her blog she wrote. Jewish rabbis have historically viewed solar eclipses as warnings from God to the Gentiles. Therefore my perspective on the upcoming phenomena is not celebratory. While no one can know for sure if judgment is coming on America. It does seem that God is singling us about something. Time will tell what that something is. So many different people saw the eclipse on Monday morning, but so many different people interpreted it differently. Some saw it as simply a beautiful display of nature. Others saw it as an opportunity to evolve spiritually. Other people saw it as the creative artwork of God. Others saw it as an evangelistic opportunity. And there were others that saw it as foreshadowing doomsday. One event, we all saw it, 
but it was interpreted in so many different ways. In John's gospel that we have been going through, John is not shy about discussing miracles and the miracles that Jesus performed, like the turning of water into wine, like the healing of the official son, or the healing of the lame man who had been sick for over 38 years, or the feeding of the 20,000 that we talked about last week. At the same time, John, a predominant theme throughout the book of John, is how shaky a foundation miraculous signs are for one's faith. After Jesus turned the water into wine, we read this. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them. Before Jesus healed the official son, we read Jesus asking, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs? After Jesus fed the massive crowd last week, we then read Jesus replying, I tell you the truth, you want me, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood my miraculous signs. There's this precarious nature of people's response to Jesus' signs. And this is a dilemma that is faced by many people of power, people that have position, people that have riches, people that have fame. It's Jesus' words, do you want to be with me simply because of what I have to offer? Or do you want to be with me for me? We hear, at least I hear, the loneliness in Jesus' words. In John 6, 26, you want to be with me because I fed you. Is there anybody out there who wants Jesus for Jesus himself? And that's the question that sets up the conversation that we're going to have today with Jesus. The after effects of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a conversation in which Jesus tries to help the crowd read the miraculous signs correctly. They're seeing the signs. They're seeing Jesus heal. They're seeing Jesus feed the 5,000. But so many people are interpreting it differently. Many even interpreting it incorrectly. The day after Jesus fed the crowd, they were back for more. Kind of like if you've ever fed a stray dog out of the kindness of your heart, what ends up happening, the dog just follows you everywhere you can go. And they wanted Jesus, and they wanted Jesus for their king. Think about it. What better king could you have than a king who could miraculously feed you? You march off into war every time you need food. Jesus just snaps his fingers. Boom, there's food. In fact, this Jesus, as we're going to find out, can raise people from the dead. What better king to go to war with than a guy who can raise the dead? Not only then do you have food forever, but if you get knocked down in battle, he just comes out on the battlefield. You get popped back up and you get to go again. It's like playing a video game. You could have life after life after life. They wanted Jesus 
as their king. But when Jesus refused to be the kind of king they were searching for, they come to Jesus with a different request. And they say in verse 28, okay, they replied, then we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? If you won't be the king that we want, how about giving us some of that God power? If you give us some of that God power, then we won't have to bother you. We won't have to keep coming back to you. Of course, if you give us some of that God power, we will use it for good. For sure we will. We'll use it to heal people. We'll use it to feed people. We'll use it to bring peace and harmony to our world. They're like people who pray before they buy the lottery ticket. And they say, Lord, if I win, I promise you I will give half of my winnings to the church. And then I will open a rehabilitation ranch for drug addicts. The problem is, is it never happens. Not it never happens that people win the lottery. People do win the lottery. What never happens is the charity people promise beforehand. Somehow they forget those promises once the win comes. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants. Believe in the one he has sent. God is only asking one thing. You're coming to me. What should we do to get this power? What should we do to, to be able to feed ourselves? Uh, Jesus is saying there's only one thing God asks. And that is believe in the one that has come from God. Believe in the one that the signs are pointing to. Use the signs as a compass, directing you to the one who's doing the signs. But that's not what the crowd was after. They simply wanted the signs. And so as soon as Jesus says that in verse 30, they answered, show us another miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? Now, just the other day, they've already seen Jesus feed 5,000 men plus. And now when Jesus says, all God is asking is for you to believe in the one he sends, they're saying, well, give us another sign. Give us one more. How about another miracle? Maybe then we'll believe. But you see this obsession with miracles blinds the people from being able to see the signs properly. In fact, we're going to see, it blinds them from even being able to read their own scripture properly. When they say, show us a miraculous sign. If you want us to believe in you, show us another one. And then they go on to say, after all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture, our Bible even says, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Sure, you fed us yesterday, but Moses, he gave us manna. Can you top that one, Jesus? Show us a sign. Now, Jesus has to step back and 
give the crowd a few instructions about their own scripture here. First, he reminds them that it wasn't Moses who gave them the bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses who gave them manna. It was God. Already, you see them mixing up the sign or the sign giver with the one behind it. It wasn't Moses. It was God. And second, he has to remind them that there was nothing special about this bread. It wasn't magic bread. It wasn't lembus bread. It wasn't Cobb's bread. There was nothing special about the bread. It even got moldy and wormy if you stored it overnight. Sure, to help God's people after they left Egypt and they went through the sea, the Red Sea that parted, and helped them through the wilderness, sure, God dropped it from heaven. It had a sweet kind of honey taste to it. But it was still just bread. It wasn't anything that was going to allow them to have a right relationship with God. It wasn't something that could somehow miraculously let them live forever. It was bread that they needed to get day after day after day. It was just bread, just like the bread Jesus made the day before. And so Jesus is wanting to help this crowd by saying, stop being so focused on satisfying your immediate needs. Stop being so focused on another temporal miracle. Look at what the signs are pointing to. The bread I made yesterday. Even the bread that God provided through Moses in your own scripture. Don't stop there. They're signs of something bigger. And so Jesus says the true bread, not manna, not the bread I made yesterday. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. That's the true bread. Not quite putting it together, they reply by saying, Sure, give us this bread every day. When is the last time in this gospel you've heard words like that before just only a couple chapters earlier jesus he meets the woman at the well and in a very similar conversation he uses another sign this time the sign is not bread but this time the sign is water and jesus says that he is the true water and there too we read the woman saying please sir give me this water then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come back here to get water. And in both cases, the crowd and the woman at the well, Jesus gives the same answer. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. You keep eating the bread I made yesterday, even though it was a miracle. You eat the manna that came from heaven. You drink the water from this well. 
It's not going to satisfy your eternal hunger, your eternal thirst. You are going to have to keep coming back. Even when the water or the bread comes miraculously, it doesn't eternally satisfy. Stop looking for the temporal and look for the eternal. I am that bread. I am that water. All of these things, the right interpretation behind them is when they point to me. About 1,400 years before Jesus fed the crowd in the feeding of the 5,000 men plus, God displayed his power by delivering Israel from Egypt. It happened about 400 years prior to the time Jesus came to this earth. And after he set Israel free from Egypt, we watch Israel walk through the Red Sea as God miraculously parts the Red Sea. They walk to the other side. The enemies pursue them. The water comes crashing back down on them. And then they're in the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, when they cry out, God sends them bread from heaven to take care of them. This is the story the crowd is referring Jesus back to. This is Israel's story. When Israel thinks about who they are as a people, the Exodus event is their story. It's the story of their God as deliverer. It is their story of God as their provider. And it is the story of God as the one who destroys their enemies. This is Israel's story. John, however, reads the story as merely another sign. John, the way he writes it, sees that story as another story pointing forward, not a story as an end. Jesus is in some ways saying to this crowd, once again, you're misreading the signs. You're going back to the Exodus and you're looking at that as the sign. And you're wanting to reduplicate that miraculous sign. But I'm here to tell you something better has come. And so what John does, which many of the gospel writers do, is just brilliant. He rewrites the Exodus story in Jesus. Notice what happens. Jesus feeds the crowd. After Jesus feeds the crowd, if you look in your Bible, before he gets into the dialogue with the crowd who chases after him before that, notice what happens. Jesus then miraculously crosses the Sea of Galilee by walking on water. It's the retelling of the Exodus story. Israel is in Egypt. Then they cross the Red Sea, and then when they're on the other side of the Red Sea, manna comes down from heaven. Now what is John doing? John shows Jesus feeding the 5,000. After he feeds the 5,000, he crosses the sea. This time it's the Sea of Galilee. And then when he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and everybody has followed Jesus on the other side, now the manna from heaven comes again. It's just that this time, 
the manna is no longer just a sign. It's Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, just like your ancestors crossed the sea, now we've crossed the sea, and now the manna has come. You want manna from heaven like in the Old Testament? Well, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yes, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I offer so the world may live is my flesh. Jesus is saying, you're living in a better time than your ancestors. Because you're getting more than just manna. You're getting more than just a sign. You're getting the real thing. The real bread from heaven. God's own son, Jesus Christ. When people went out on Monday to see the solar eclipse, what did they see? Not all people see the same thing even when they look at the same thing. Now, some will say that this means that truth is relative, that truth is just in your head, whatever you believe is true for you. But that is simply nonsensical type of thinking because just because you believe that the child that you conceive at the moment of an eclipse is going to be a higher level of an evolutionary being doesn't mean it's true. And so... What you believe by what you see could be mistaken. How do you read the signs? Not all readings of the Bible are equally true. Even some cult groups will come and say they got their beliefs from the Bible. Not all readings and not all interpretations of the signs are valid. As Jesus pointed out, the way the crowd was interpreting the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 was incorrect. The way the crowd was interpreting Jesus as their king was incorrect. They wanted a wrong kind of king. They saw the signs in the wrong kind of way. And so the question might come then, well then how do we know how to read the signs? How do we know if we're making a, a right interpretation of what we see or a wrong interpretation? And Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he is the interpretive standard. He is the one who the signs are about. He is the one, he is the standard, he is the grid through who we see everything else. How do you understand the signs of water and wine and bread or manna? How do you understand the sign of flesh and blood, healing, Moses? 
How do you understand the signs? They're signs of Jesus. Jesus is the truth we are to see. If in reading the signs and reading the scriptures, we're not seeing Jesus, we aren't reading properly. If we're just reading tales of morality rather than Jesus lifted up, we are not reading correctly. It's all about him. And this is precisely the offensiveness of Jesus. Because it's very exclusive. What right does Jesus have to say it's all about him? What right does Jesus say that my reading of the signs or my reading of the scriptures isn't equally true? What right does Jesus have to say that everything is about him and he is the one right way? This is something that was offensive to people in Jesus' day just as it is offensive to us in our day. Notice in John chapter 6, after Jesus says this, it's all about me, three times we read this, verse 41, the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? Verse 52, the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They asked. Just a few verses later, at verse 60, many of his disciples said, This is very hard to understand. Who can accept it? The story hits us with the offensiveness of Jesus. It was just as offensive in Jesus' day as our day. All the more displayed with Jesus' drastic imagery of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, that would take anybody off their guard. How can anyone accept it? And Jesus answers by saying, the only way you can is by a risk of faith. The affirmation comes after you take the risk. I am the bread of life. All right, prove it. Well, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. How do I know I'll never be hungry? Well, you've got to come to me first. I am the water of life. Sure, prove it. All right? Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. There's only so much I can say. You have to experience it to know it for yourself. I could stand up here and have a great glass of freshly squeezed orange juice. And I could say, this is the best orange juice you could ever taste. And you could say to me, prove it. And I could tell you how it was made, where the oranges came from, how they were squeezed, how the juice was put together, how the seeds were taken out. 
And you could say, well, I want more evidence. As much as I explain to you, show you, even maybe let you smell it, the only way you will know if it's really good orange juice is after you drink it. Then it's no longer a theory you've heard, but something you've experienced for yourself. Jesus is saying it's after coming to me that you experience the life that you're unable to experience when you're outside of Christ. A life that's eternal. A life that begins now abundant and is full of joy. A life that continues forever on resurrection day. Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Notice that these are actions. Not just if you say it or investigate it, unless you actually eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life. Anyone who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise that person up on the last day. In his work, The Globalization of Addiction, Bruce Alexander from Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver studied the increasing rise of addiction in Vancouver. And beyond our drug crisis, which is causing more and more deaths every year, Dr. Alexander points out the hidden lives of those who are addicted to many things. Hidden lives because they're people just like you and I, not necessarily people that are strung out on the streets of Vancouver somewhere, but are living, quote-unquote, normal lives, but hidden underneath and behind, there are addictions to gambling, and to food, and to sex, and to work, and to sports, and on and on he goes. University students, in his survey, most frequently cited addictions to romantic love, and addictions to eating and dieting, as things that were destroying them as human beings. He writes that online games are replacing drugs as the most feared addiction for children. Chat room, blogging, gaming, and web surfing addictions are moving far up the list of dangerous addictions for adults. Dangerous? How are these dangerous? Well, in his extensive study, Dr. Alexander writes that large numbers of people who watch TV, play video games, including many children, are addicted to the point of causing serious life problems, such as failing in school, living in isolation, weight loss, losing jobs, divorce. I know one individual that is um, middle-aged, married, has children that are high school, just uh, almost into university, who on two occasions, when his wife was out, almost burnt his house down playing video games. On both occasions, he put something on the stove that was cooking it, macaroni or something, went back and got so involved in his video game, it actually caught on fire and burned part of the kitchen down. Happened twice to him. In interviewing people struggling with different addictions, 
They use words like finding their life out of control, possessed, self-loathing, guilty, empty, not happy, tired all the time, zombie, a living death. Many are depressed, violent, we see it in road rage, and even suicidal. In fact, you can go through the alphabet today and find support groups to help you with almost everything you can think of that's killing us as a society. I went on and tried going through the alphabet and found real legitimate groups for things like Alcoholics Anonymous, Bloggers Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous, Emotions Anonymous, Fundamentalists Anonymous, Gamblers and Gamers Anonymous. I could just keep going through the list. We are people in desperate need of life. We're dying. And the things that we're pursuing are destroying us and killing us. We're in desperate need of the one who says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will no longer be hungry again. Whoever begins to embrace my life and understand who I am can start the path free from the things that we're hungering after, but they only make us more and more thirsty. I can quench your real thirst. And yet many turn from the life giver and cling to the things that bring death instead because... They feel safer with the no one. Or they're hoping for another miracle and another sign that will just poof, take it away. Rather than a relationship with God that begins to do the hard work of making us who we were meant to be. And so at this point, even though Jesus laid it all out before them. At this point, verse 66, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Do you recognize what that says? It doesn't say many in the crowd deserted Jesus. We sometimes miss some of that. That there are people who are believers in Jesus for a time. It says, at that point, many of Jesus' disciples turned away and deserted him. But despite the fact that the crowds left, despite the fact that many of Jesus' disciples left, Jesus addresses each one of us individually. In what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, we then read Jesus turning to the twelve. Jesus had more disciples than the 12. The 12 were kind of his core. He turned to the 12 who hadn't left, and he gave them the same choice and said, are you also going to leave? Notice Jesus was not desperate for followers. He didn't say, oh, please don't leave too. Everybody's leaving me now. Don't leave also. He said, crowds are left. Many of my disciples are left. Are you going to leave too? 
And in one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter still didn't understand all the implications of Jesus. Peter didn't have all of his theology correctly sorted out and even figuring out some of the weird nuances of Jesus' symbolic language of eating flesh and drinking blood. There was still a lot that Peter was going to have to learn, but he knew enough to risk everything on this one named Jesus. Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. How many times has your faith come down to that? I know for me it has many times. I think back to a significant health crisis I had in my first year of Bible college. Or my second year of college when I had a real intellectual crisis of faith. And then about 10 years ago when I was in ministry and I started having panic attacks around public speaking. And for almost a year wondered if I was going to be able to continue in ministry. Trying to work through these anxiety and panic attacks. And every single one of those times, though I struggled with God... I struggled with God through depression. I struggled with God through anger. I struggled with God through doubts. Every single time I came down to that question, where else can I go? What are my other options out there? To temporary signs and wonders? Or am I going to go to Muhammad? To Buddha? To Krishna? Karl Marx or Zoroaster or Moses? Am I going to try booster juice or some anti-aging cream or Amway? Where am I going to go? So though I don't have it all figured out, though sometimes you seem to confuse me and you seem to strip me of everything that I am, Lord, to whom can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And I believe and know that you are the Holy One of God, and so I'm sticking with you. Sometimes that's all faith is. Peter's confession. And so an eclipse reminds us that Jesus loves beauty. And that Jesus has the entire cosmos perfectly in order. And when I read the Bible, I see in it story after story, statute after statute, it all pointing to Jesus. Because he's the only one that I can go to. He's the only one who it's all about. This morning it was only so appropriate with Jesus' words to once again participate in communion. I'm going to call the 
staff forward to help me serve and the praise team to come up at this time. Jesus said, if you want life, true life, a life that will set you free, a life that forgives your sins, and a life that's eternal, that life is going to be found in me because I am the author of life. All the other things around you are creations of mine. They cannot offer life. Yes, there's beauty in many of them, but they all come from me, and so to find life, you have to go to the source. I am the author of life. And so I offer my life as bread. If you take me into your life, if you eat of me, You will never be hungry again in the things that are most important in life. And Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I offer my life to you. I shed my blood for you for your forgiveness, to cover over your sins. It's only by partaking of me that you can find true life. For those of you who have made that decision or want to make that decision this morning to say yes to Jesus, Jesus, I want the life that's found in you. We welcome you to come and to participate at the table this morning. Let's sing.